When sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet, though, though trials should come, do you know sorrows? Feeling the pain of trials, how is it possible to know that wellness of soul that we just sang about, that the hymn writer Horatio Spafford writes about, following the tragedy of losing all four of his daughters to drowning? How can we experience joy when your heart gets ripped out? Or when tragedy strikes, hope disappoints, trials come in bunches, or when just doing right and living right don't seem to really matter? Where do we go to find our joy? when our circumstances aren't all that we would like them to be. Back in the 30s, architect Frank Lloyd Wright built a beautiful house for industrialist Hibbard Johnson. And one rainy evening, Johnson was entertaining distinguished guests for dinner in this house that Frank Lloyd Wright built, and and the roof began to leak. The water seeped through directly above Hibbard Johnson himself, dripping steadily on his bald head. Irate, he called Wright in Phoenix, Arizona. Frank, he said, you built this beautiful house for me and we enjoy it very much, but the roof leaks. Right now, I'm sitting with some friends and distinguished guests, and it's leaking right on top of my head. There was a pause in the line, and Frank Lloyd Wright replied, Well, Hibbard, why don't you just move your chair? (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. Not bad advice when it comes to dealing with those troubled leaks in our lives. Sometimes we'd rather complain about the leak than move our chair. A little rain will come to every life. How will you deal with it? Speaking of leaks, evangelist Billy Sunday noticed the absence of joy on so many people around him. And so he said this, if there's not joy in your religion, you've got a leak in your faith. (laughs) You got any leaks? You got any leaks? If there's no joy in your life, loved ones, you have a problem. You've got a leak someplace, and you need to find a way to deal with it. Well, rejoice begins with a choice. And when trouble strikes, it will take intentionality rather than passivity if we're going to live life on purpose. And when things come at us and we want to live life on purpose, we must be intentional. Rejoice begins with a choice. We're making our way through the book of 1 Peter. I'd have you turn there if you're not there in your Bibles, 1 Peter. We ended last week's study, our first week, uh, at verse 5. And we pick it up here at verse 6. And we see an immediate connection to what we saw last week. And so look with me at your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to notice verse 6 Two words that start this sentence off, that start this verse off. In the NASB and the NIV, the first two words of verse 6 are in this. In this. 
in this or in which link what he's about to say with what he just said. Well, what did he just say? Well, as the theme turns to troubles in life, we must keep in mind our our subject of last week. That God has given us new birth. That God has guaranteed us a living hope. That God has guaranteed us an eternal inheritance. And he will guard both the inheritance and the inheritor to the end. In this, in this, what God has given us. In this, and what God has guaranteed. In this, and what God will guard. The verse goes on. In this, you greatly rejoice. Not only rejoice, but greatly rejoice. And translators struggle to really capture how strong that rejoicing is. And they just put in the word great. Well, they've missed it. If you have a translation that says super abundantly joyful, then that's it. That's the right translation here. It's to have the greatest joy possible in the profound sense, not in the circumstantial sense. It is to be exceedingly glad, super abundantly joyful. You see, pain and joy can coexist. Over and over again in the New Testament, joy and and suffering are spoken of together. That's why I've entitled this sermon, Painful Joy. Well, you say, is this possible? I mean, is this realistic, Pastor? Are these opening words of verse 6 attainable? Well, Peter seems to think so. The Spirit of God who, who superintended Peter in writing these words seems to believe it's possible. God, the the author of all scripture, makes it unmistakably clear that there's a built-in joy for every believer to experience constantly. The question is, are we experiencing this joy? And if not, dare to ask, why not? And that's where Peter takes us next. We have in these verses a little theology of trials, a theology of troubles wrapped up in this one passage. There's four points that I want to make. Most of our time we're going to spend on verses 6 and 7, but we'll get through this, I think. Here are the four points. Little theology here of troubles. First point is, troubles or trials will touch our lives. Troubles or trials will touch our lives. Now, that may seem obvious, but at times we seem surprised when suffering strikes as if this shouldn't happen or God somehow let us down or that a child of God shouldn't have to go through this. Yet verse 6 reminds us that troubles will touch our lives. Follow along as I read here, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. All kinds. All kinds here means multicolored. All kinds of trials. Peter speaks honestly about the pain they are experiencing. He doesn't deny the reality of their grief. Folks, it's it's not unchristian. It's not unspiritual to speak of your pain. The God who made us built into us a normal human response to hardship. Don't deny your grief. Be honest in facing it. 
I read about Mae West, whose career as an actress spanned, I think, like seven decades. In her younger years, she was known for her beauty and as a sex symbol. It had a lot to do with her rise to fame. But as the aging process began to show with, with, with inevitable wrinkles and, and lines in her face, Mae West could not deal with it. She did not want to believe that her glamour would actually fade. And she was in such a state of severe denial, she removed all the mirrors in her home, all of them. All of them were carried off. Every mirror was removed. She figured if she didn't have to look into the face of reality, she could live on. For some, that's how they deal with pain and suffering. They reason, I'm just not going to face it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't even bring it to me. I want to refuse to look at it and so I can go on my way. Peter is a realist. When it comes to their trials, he says, you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Peter does not for a moment minimize the heaviness of their trials. You notice that? Let me give you a better way to deal with hardship. Remember the patriarch Abraham? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Yet when that promise was given, he had no sons and Sarah was barren. To add to that, he and Sarah, well, well, they weren't getting any younger in age. And to be the father of many would suggest that you're a father of at least one. Nothing. Well, in Romans chapter 4, you can go there if you want. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, speak to this very issue. At least jot it down and look it up. Romans 4, verses 18 through 21. I love what it says here. I love these words, Romans 4, 18 to 21, and speaking of this situation with Abraham. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. I want you to catch these words that come next. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, I don't know about you, but I find tremendous comfort in those words. He faced the fact. And yet he did so without any indication of wavering in his faith. See, facing the facts of our pain and having true faith can live together under the same roof. And so Peter writes to people who are in great stress, distress. Their, their pain is real. The trials they are facing are causing grief. But he does try to put it in perspective by reminding them that not only will troubles touch our lives, but troubles won't last. Troubles won't last. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, notice the middle of verse 6, what Peter says about their troubles. He says, though now for a little while. Though now for a little while. He's saying trials are brief. And brief is relative. I want you to do something. Humor me here. I'm going to count to three, and I want you to hold your breath. 
Now, if for some reason, health reason, you shouldn't, then don't do this. But the rest of you, go with me on this. Okay? I'm going to count to three and hold your breath. Ready? One, two, three. All right, all right, you can exhale. That was only 10 seconds, and it might have started to feel like a long time. I was going to go 30 seconds to a minute. I just didn't want to lose you. If you continue to hold it for a minute or or two minutes or three minutes, we would say, that's a long time. Standing at the checkout line with an active toddler, five minutes seems like eternity, doesn't it? But if you say that so-and-so has gone to this church for a long time, you mean 15 to 20 years. Been here a long time. See, it's relative. What you might consider a long time of suffering, when compared to an endless eternity, it really can be considered brief. It may not feel very brief, but that's because we're comparing our suffering with others' suffering or with the here and now time frame. But you connect it to forever, match it up against the the length of the wonderful future God has for us tomorrow, it is indeed brief for a little while. Now, just a word for you here. Don't go around, you have this sentence here, this little statement, for a little while. Don't go around and give your for a little while talks to everyone who's under some trouble. You know what I'm saying? When someone's getting hit with some trial, he doesn't need you going up to him with your little, for a little while sermon. All right? Don't use this phrase glibly. Oh, it's just for a little while. Amen, I want to hear it. Don't use it glibly. It's like the pastor and the leader who were greeted at the airport by someone from the church. And this informer came to the pastor and the leader, and he said to him, I have some bad news as the pastor and the leader came off the plane. And he looked at the leader, his name was John, and he said, Brother, while you were away, a tornado came through and knocked your house to the ground. The pastor immediately jumped in. He says, I've been telling you, John, a man reaps what he sows. The informer continued, oh, and pastor, it also destroyed your house. (laughs) The pastor quickly replied, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. (laughs) Funny how we change it when it's us. See, there's a place to remind one another that troubles won't last and that compared to forever, it's for a little while. Just be respectful and considerate of the timing. When a person is up against trials, a for a little while speech just might not be very helpful. But loved ones, don't forget that that when suffering is placed up against forever, it will only make up a minuscule fraction of our lives for a little while. Troubles will come. Don't deny the existence of suffering. Troubles won't last. It doesn't make suffering any less painful in the here and now, but you can experience joy as you remember that there's life on the other side of your suffering. So you can expect suffering and pain, and you can experience joy, painful joy. You can have it. As Spurgeon put it, the steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. And the beautiful thing is that God never wastes those tears. 
That's our third point. It's our thir- third little insight to the theology of troubles that not only troubles will touch our lives and not only troubles won't last, but thirdly, troubles won't be wasted. Trials, troubles won't be wasted. There's another phrase to note here in verse 6. Let me read verse 6 again. Follow along. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to, had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. A literal translation of those two words, had to, is if it is necessary. So the trials that Peter refers to here are spoken of as being necessary. Had to. You had to. Why? Why this had to? Why are, why are trials necessary? Verse 7 answers that. He says, these have come so that, here's your purpose statement, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, God does not delight in pain for its own sake. But he has a, he has a design for the pain in our lives. And while God is even able to bring good out of the self-inflicted pain due to our sinful choices, that isn't the main focus of these verses. See, when we do our own thing and we sin against God and then we're left with the painful consequences of those choices, that's a different matter than what's in front of us here, even though God can still use that. That's not where he's going with this. But you see, when we know that a purposeful God won't waste our pain, that we can just hang in there another day. God wants to see you through the trouble to reach its desired end. When troubles hit, brothers and sisters in Christ, when troubles hit your life, that's no time to walk away. As someone put it, when the high seas are raging, it's no time to change ships. God will not waste your pain. What is God's design for trials, for the suffering you're encountering? Well, verse 7 tells us, These trials have come so that, here's the purpose, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Do you see its purpose? That your faith may be proved genuine. Proved genuine to whom? Not to God. He already knows. It doesn't prove anything to the Lord when you withstand trials. He isn't waiting to see if you're going to make it through it or not. He already knows. He's not going, well, I don't know if he's going to get it there. I hope his faith is real so I can see that it's real. That's not a problem for him. He knows. He already knows whether or not your faith is genuine. But for you to see it? For you to make it through the trial and know you're still following Christ, that does something for you. That does something to strengthen your walk with the Lord. So the proving here is for your benefits. It gives you more cause to rejoice because you come out on the other side of the test knowing that your faith is real. There's tremendous joy in knowing that. Now the word for proof here is of the process of testing metal to determine its true character. Peter's here speaking of a faith under fire. And he speaks of of this imagery here, just as gold endures the process that removes all of the impurities, making it more precious. 
Our faith comes under some heat designed to remove the impurities that are stunting our growth. And we should ask, what impurities? What impurities? Well, anything that is getting in the way of our utter dependence on God, he wants to remove that. That's what he's stripping away. Anything that is getting in the way of our utter dependence upon God, he wants to remove that. Why do we not live in greater dependence on God? Oh, oh, because we have all kinds of props that we lean on all over the place. All over this world, we've got this one, we've got that one, we lean on them. It's in times of testing that those props that we're leaning on, they're removed. We say, what props? Well, there's, there, there's the prop of safety. We lean on our personal safety and, and comfort then, then step out and, and lean on him. We go, this is kind of comfortable right here. Don't touch that. This is my prop. That's what I'm leaning on. Don't knock it down. There's the prop of convenience. Oh, don't touch that one. There's the prop of tradition or the prop of planning. Even good things can become props. People can become props. Churches can become props. A prop may be some prized object that we lean on. We may prize our title. We may prize our looks. We may prize our popularity or that we're athletic. We may prize all those things. It's, it, it, and we lean on them. That's where we're getting our significance from. Don't mess with that. It's interesting that gold is mentioned in this context because that's often our most prized object. Yet even refined gold what does what? Eventually perishes. What's God after? What's God after in my life? Remember one of the overarching principles for the sermon series that God's primary concern for us is our holiness. God's primary concern for us is our holiness. And we're going to really jump into that next week. But God's moving us toward something. A woman visited with a silversmith and looked on as the silversmith held a piece of silver over the fire under some intense heat. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flame was the hottest as to burn away all the impurities. He further explained the importance of any silversmith's attention to the silver during this refining. He said that his eyes must be on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. For if the silver was left even for a moment too long in the flames, it would be consumed. How true is that with our Lord? His eyes are on the refining process. He knows exactly how long to keep his children under the intense heat. And he will not keep you in there one second too long. Not one. He knows. The woman was watching the silversmith and a thought occurred to her, her, so she asked him, how do you know when the silver's refined? The silversmith smiled at her and replied, oh, that's easy, when I can see my image in it. When I can see my image in it. Are you feeling the heat of some trial right now? Christ the silversmith has his eye on you and he will keep you until he sees his his image in you. He's after something. God won't waste your pain. He won't. 
And the result of that proven faith it says here is praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at the end of verse 7. On that day when the secrets of all hearts are revealed, all those whose faith is real will receive praise, glory, and honor that we give back to him, yes. But I think this is talking about when secrets are revealed and those who have withstood the test of trials, there's going to be praise, there's going to be glory, there's going to be honor. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Keep trusting him in the midst of those hardships. That's the results. Yes, there's troubles. But we can rejoice because we know they won't last. They won't be wasted. And the bottom line is, fourth point, the bottom line is, troubles can't steal joy. Troubles can't steal joy. Stay with me on this. Why is it that trials sweeten some and sour others? Someone said that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. Troubles can't steal joy. It doesn't have the ability to take that from you. Why? Because rejoice begins with a choice. Your choice, my choice, that's where it begins. Now, I want to make a strong statement here. It's aimed at myself as as much as, as to anyone else in this room. It's a strong statement, but I want us to get this. It's a long statement. I'll shorten it a little bit later. Hang on. It says this. This is what I want to say. No matter where you may be today, no matter where you may be today, if your walk with the Lord is not characterized by joy, if you don't have that deep down sense of peace and satisfaction, If you do not have this quiet confidence that all is well because God is in control, if you do not have this exhilarating sense of purpose in your life, no matter what you may be going through, then something is not right. I say that to myself. Troubles cannot steal my joy. I give it to it. That's how we respond to them. That's the difference. If your walk with the Lord is not characterized by joy, then something is not right. Need to get your joy back? Do I need to get my joy back? Peter tells us how how there's two ways. I'm going to hit this quickly. Two ways to get our joy back. If you're losing it or you're starting to slip away, two ways we get it back. One, passionately pursue Christ. Very profound. Passionately pursue Christ. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter here mentions in verse 8 their love for Jesus Christ. It's a constant love that he speaks of here. It is a love they have even though they have not seen Jesus. Peter had. They did not. And these persecuted believers who have not seen Jesus, it says of them, they loved him with a constant love. You want to regain, I want to regain and recapture joy in my life. I must be passionately pursuing Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. 
I don't care what book is out there that tells you otherwise. They're lying to you. That's the only way. And what happens when we passionately pursue him and love him, wrap all our our life around him, go hard after him? What happens? Well, the end of verse 8 says we're filled with an inexpressible joy. Now, not a bad translation of the Greek here because the word describing this joy means higher than speech. It is a joy that you can't even explain or communicate it to others. Now, most of us, most of the time, wouldn't have much trouble explaining our joy because it doesn't go beyond words enough. We probably can communicate it because it's a joy that we produce rather than the Spirit produces. But see, a divine joy that fills our life because we are passionately pursuing Christ, that's hard to explain. If your walk with the Lord is not characterized by joy, then something is not right. And the joy that we have in our personal relationship with Christ spills out to what we see in verse 9. We're receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I believe that's present what we have presently rather than what is still yet future because the word receiving is present tense. It's what we have all wrapped up in the salvation now, not all later. Now, we have all kinds of stuff wrapped up in our salvation right now. And that really leads to the second thing we're going to do if we're going to recapture our joy. Not only passionately pursue Christ, but secondly, secondly, be consumed with our salvation. Be consumed with our salvation. Obsessed about it if you have to. Peter is celebrating salvation, and that's why he ends where he does in verses 10 through 12, which I'm only going to be able to read and make a comment or two because we're running out of time. But verse 10, follow along, concerning this salvation. Be consumed with it. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The whole point of this paragraph, the whole point of this paragraph seems to be that Peter wanted his readers to see the greatness of their salvation. And we've had it for so long, we go, eh, yeah, I'm born again. Can you see it? He wanted to show them that the spiritual blessings they now have are greater than anything that was imagined by Old Testament prophets or even by the angels. The angels wish they understood about redemption experientially. The prophets could only write about it as they looked forward to a coming Messiah. And loved ones, we have it. We have it. We know firsthand this glorious salvation. We just shrug our shoulders. The angels long for that. The Old Testament prophets wish they had it. We have it. How precious is your salvation? Are you consumed with it? If you lost some joy, is the song in the heart isn't what what, in your heart isn't what it used to be? Passionately pursue Christ. Be consumed consumed with salvation. 
That will get us through the troubles. A person once asked his friend, how are you doing? And his friend was upset about something that was going on in his life, and he said, oh, all right, under the circumstances. And his friend said back to him, well, what are you doing under your circumstances to begin with? <laughs> See, if the roof is leaking and you can't get someone to fix it right away, move your chair. Rejoice begins with a choice. Change your perspective. Take some control of your life by rejoicing. In his book, Hope is Contagious, Ken Hutcherson shares a moment from his personal life as he was battling cancer. He says this, One day I was relaxing in my recliner after having spent five hours in the emergency room the night before. I'll admit I was exhausted and the pain medication wasn't working as well as I would have liked. I looked around and I saw my family going about their lives as usual. Video games, chores, music, laughter. My wife Pat was fixing breakfast. Even our new little puppy was settling into a comfortable routine and enjoying everyone's efforts to spoil him. A visitor stopped by to chat. Some friends from church surprised me with a birthday cake, and I had almost forgotten it was my birthday. So there I sat, surrounded by so much goodness, even as I'm feeling lousy. My favorite cake is staring at me, but I have no appetite. My 11-year-old runs past me, and I don't have enough energy to grab him and wrestle him to the ground like I used to. I'm trying to have a conversation with my guests, but between the short night and the powerful pain pills, I can barely stay alert. You know what I'm thinking. Can you imagine how close I am to being overwhelmed with what's happening to me? And the words practically shouted from inside of me, Isn't God great? What a privilege to be his child. Wow. Like the Puritan who sat down with just a piece of bread and water and said, Wow, all this and Jesus too? Yes. Rejoice begins with a choice. The joy of the Lord can shine through the tears that come into our lives. The one enjoyed now is greater than the pain in our lives. The Christian life is indeed one of painful joy. Rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, what a perspective. Ah, just sit sometimes in that chair and just let the rain hit me on the head and just want to complain about it. Troubles do not have the capacity to take my joy away unless I give it to it. Help me to be joyful. In all circumstances, I would be joyful because I have Jesus. I have salvation, a rich salvation it is. May we sing of that. May we be joyful in our hearts. Not a worked up, fake kind of joy, but the real joy that comes because we know you and we love you and we pursue you. Help us to sing with that joy in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.